You're listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church of Van Walsteen. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. You sound great this morning. You don't look too bad either. Some of you look better than others. Just being honest, okay? No, good to see you. I love this time of year. I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to a s'more. Like, I'm looking forward to uh, when it's uh, socially responsible to start a fire, actually. That's what I'm looking forward to. Um, cooler temperatures, um, all those things. I love this time of year. love Friday night lights. love um, just all that this season brings. And looking forward to uh, what the fall will bring for us as a church family. I hope that you are, too. Uh, let me just... Real quickly, kind of give you an idea of where we're heading. Uh, we have this summer been in uh, the first uh, few chapters of Proverbs here, and we're going to continue that over the next couple of weeks. Uh, but then we will be going to the book of Galatians in the fall. We're going to be looking at uh, one of Paul's epistles, and that will take us, uh, Lord willing, through the end of the year when we will look at the Gospel of John, uh, starting out in the Christmas season, I guess you might say. And so, uh, that's kind of the direction we're going. I also am planning uh, over the next couple of weeks to uh, put out a list of uh, the books that we have covered at least over the last eight years that I've had the privilege of being the pastor here. I know some of you are newer and maybe you're thinking, man, I wish you would go to my favorite book of the Bible or whatever. And, uh, and we may have done that in the last two or three years, uh, last four or five years even. And so uh, that would kind of give you a chance to get an idea of when we were maybe in that book of the Bible together, and you can even go back and listen to some of those messages, uh, and hopefully you will determine th- this guy's getting better as he, the more he preaches. Uh, that, that's uh, hopefully what you'll discover, but uh, at any rate, this morning we are in Proverbs chapter 6 together, Proverbs chapter 6 in our summer sermon series. We've been looking at the book of Proverbs, primarily focusing on the first eight chapters where we find uh, a sort of introduction to the rest of the book, to the sayings of uh, Proverbs that you normally think of, the little pithy one-liners, you know, the, the, the things that you kind of grab hold of, a bumper sticker uh, kind of stuff, we might say. And these early chapters cover a series of parental appeals uh, from a father to his son, uh, Solomon uh, to his son. Now, I want to remind you that biblical wisdom... Uh, is not just the ability to make good decisions. That's a part of it. But biblical wisdom is to see life from God's perspective, to understand God's instruction in the practical matters of life, in the day-to-day, where we live. And we know that life is made up of a series of choices, decisions, and we often need guidance. We need wisdom in making those decisions, and it is to choose to live out God's truth in our daily lives as we make those decisions. I want to remind you that uh, wisdom in Scripture is not a thing, it is a person. Jesus Christ is the perfect embodiment of wisdom. And so, again, Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he said, But to those called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And so, if you are seeking wisdom, From a biblical perspective, that fundamentally means seeking Jesus, following hard after Jesus, striving to live like Jesus. In fact, Luke tells us in his gospel, chapter 2, verse 52, that Jesus in his earthly life increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. 
So even as a human, as he was growing up into a man, and he was physically growing, he was increasing in, uh, even in wisdom itself, humanly speaking. Uh, he has never lacked wisdom, to be sure, uh, but uh, certainly uh, we see that in Luke's gospel. Now, several years ago, we lived in South Texas. We lived in Alice, which, if you're not familiar with South Texas, is kind of the hub city of South Texas, uh, a lot of oil field uh, companies there, Schlumberger, Halliburton, all those people, and, um, and close enough to the Gulf Coast that I can remember on a number of occasions um, paying really good attention to hurricane warnings. Now, we hear of hurricane warnings, and we probably don't give it just a whole lot of thought because we are far enough inland that they don't typically impact us too much, but in Alice, we were close enough to Corpus Christi and the Gulf Coast down there that they did impact us. In fact, sometimes those warnings would be so significant, so severe, uh, the storm coming so powerful, the, uh, the path that it was following was, uh, was of the type that they would say, you even need to board up your homes. And so we did that a couple of times when we lived in Alice. And one of the things that we did experience was some of the, the bands that would be associated with a hurricane and these high winds and those kinds of things. Now, we were never given an evacuation warning, but certainly we saw what that can do because the people who were closer uh, to the shore, closer to the water, uh, they, would, they would be told, you need to evacuate and you need to evacuate now. Well, many times they would come to our community, and they would need a place to hunker down, a place to find shelter. And, and I'm, I'm always amazed, and I know you've seen this too, if you watch the news during hurricane season especially, inevitably there are a few people who will say, we're not going anywhere. I've lived here my whole life. I'm not going anywhere. I'm staying, right? You're just like, what are you thinking? I mean, and, and if the storm is strong enough, many times you will hear that there was loss of life. And a lot of times, those people had been fairly warned to evacuate, to leave the area. But for whatever reason, they chose not to, to take a chance on riding out the storm. Well, what we find here in Proverbs chapters 5, 6, and 7, uh, we looked at uh, selected sections in, in, in chapters 5 through 7 last week as we uh, saw Solomon uh, issue his eighth parental appeal uh, and, and in that, it was really a warning concerning matters of sexual immorality. In fact, if you were here last week and it was your first time and you came back this week, I am so glad that you were here, okay? Because uh, you preach messages like that that are sometimes a little difficult, maybe a little sensitive, and things you wonder, man, how did that land on some people, you know? Um, and it, it's God's word. Uh, and there's a very clear warning here concerning matters of sexual immorality. Uh, the message of... of uh, of the, the passages that we looked at last week give this illustration in illustrating the allure of what uh, Solomon refers to as the forbidden woman and the consequences of following her into, into sin. Now today we're going to backtrack a little bit because if you look at chapters 5, 6, and 7, uh, you'll notice that kind of sandwiched between these two big sections addressing sexual immorality is verses 1 through 19 of chapter 6 here. Uh, and so uh, we, we covered that subject last week. This week we're going to kind of backtrack and look at verses 1 through 19 of chapter 6 where we find another warning passage that deals with uh, really three areas primarily, three uh, main areas, our wealth, our work, and the subject of a wicked heart. Now, throughout his writing here, throughout uh, Proverbs and really throughout Scripture, uh, we see that it always comes back to the condition of one's heart. 
This is the heart of the matter. Scripture says very clearly that man looks on the outward appearance. So I can fool you, you can fool me, but none of us are fooling God because God knows our heart. So you can sit here this morning and you can look like you've got it all together and you're just walking in tune with the Lord and, man, you're just on fire. But, but deep down inside, maybe there's something else going on. And God knows that. I may not. The person sitting near you may not. But God does because he looks at the heart. So he continues in Proverbs here to make it clear. We're not just talking about moralism. We're not just talking about being good people. He's talking about a life change, a heart change. And so he continues to, to come back to this theme of the condition of one's heart. And we, again, see that here in, uh, in chapter 6. So I hope that you'll follow along this morning as I read those first 19 verses of Proverbs chapter 6. And in most of our Bibles, you'll notice uh, that it says practical warnings. It says the same thing uh, as a heading to chapter 5. So this whole section really is made up of warnings. Beware. So he says, My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, have given your pledge for a stranger, if you were snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself. For you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, hasten, and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. Then in verse 6, he says, Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart, there it is, devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. The section of chapter 6 that you're probably most familiar with begins there in, in verse number 16. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. So let's, uh, let's look at the, the three sections of these 19 verses and break it down a bit. Let's consider, first of all, responsibility in our stewardship. Now, the language here is putting up security or giving uh, your pledge. It means to vouch for someone financially or, or legally even. Uh, it means you're legally responsible if another person fails to pay a debt or to perform a duty. We would say today it's co-signing on a loan. Now, I don't think that, that, that there's a strict, for, you know, it's not strictly forbidden here to co-sign with someone. It's saying you've got to use great wisdom in doing that. Don't get yourself overextended uh, financially, particularly, is, is what I think he's getting at. And I, 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 I found this interesting. I looked at the uh, Federal Trade Commission website, okay? And I actually found a bit of wisdom there. Uh, on its website, it gives this sober warning uh, uh, about co-signing on a loan. 
without giving it careful consideration and using wisdom. It says this, you are being asked to guarantee this debt. Think carefully before you do. If the borrower does not pay the debt, you will have to. Be sure you can afford to pay if you have to and that you want to accept this responsibility. You may have to pay up to the full amount of the debt if the borrower does not pay. You may also have to pay late fees or collection costs which increase this amount. The creditor can collect this debt from you without first trying to collect from the borrower. The creditor can use the same collection methods against you that can be used against the borrower, such as suing you, garnishing your wages, etc. If this debt is ever in default, that fact may become a part of your credit record. Uh, there's some wisdom there, right? I mean, you should give this careful consideration. And I think in a general way, we can say we should use great wisdom in how we steward the resources that God has given to us. We should not allow ourselves to get overextended. I don't have to tell you that, uh, that our culture today, particularly here in America, uh, where we're pretty attached to a fairly affluent lifestyle, we are way overextended financially. Consumer debt, I mean, is just it's skyrocketed. And, and, and I realize that there are all different situations involved in why someone may need to utilize debt. And I'm not suggesting that it's sinful to utilize debt in a, in a, in a wise way. But far too often what we find, that the, the, I'm not an economist, but I do know this. You cannot continue to spend more than you make and then not eventually catch up with you. You just can't. There's, that, that's not wise. Uh, and so in a general sense here, Solomon is saying you, you've got to uh, be responsible in the way that you utilize the resources God has entrusted to you. Now, I want to make something crystal clear here. Scripture is not anti-helping people. That's not what Solomon's getting at. Okay? In fact, it's very pro-helping people, obviously. When you give uh, help to someone, what, what, what I think we would say the general principle is you don't do it expecting to get anything back. Yeah, again, I'm not suggesting that, you, uh, that it's wrong to loan money to a friend if you do it in the right kind of way or to, to, to maybe you know, have money loaned to you from a friend or that kind of thing. I, but I think we've we got to be very wise in how we steward uh, any and all of the resources that God has entrusted to us. And Jesus teaches us to give gen, uh, generously and cheerfully. We're to give like Christ gave. I would say it this way, we are to leverage the resources that God has entrusted to us in a way that enables us to be as generous as possible. And when I say resources, I'm not just talking about your money, I'm talking about all of the things, the material things that God has entrusted to you, your home, your vehicles, your, your resources, okay? anything that you would consider an asset. We are to leverage those resources in such a way uh, that it enables us to be as generous as possible. So the motivation for the believer to pursue financial freedom, to not get overextended financially, is not so that we can live a life of extravagant comfort and ease. Again, not suggesting you shouldn't plan for retirement. Not, certainly not suggesting that you shouldn't uh, save money in a wise way. But, but the motivation is not so that we can live a life of extravagant comfort and ease, but so that we can be more generous in the mission of loving God and loving others, loving our neighbor. Most people who struggle in the area of stewardship are really struggling in the area of ownership when it comes right down to it. 
There is to be a definitive ownership-stewardship dynamic in the way that we view and hold on to everything that God entrusts to us. Now, I know human nature says, this is mine. This is mine. I worked hard for it. I saved. I sacrificed. This is mine. This is mine. But Scripture says everything we have ultimately belongs to the Lord. He's the one who gave us the very breath to go and earn a living and to the ability to save some of those resources and to accumulate some of the things that we enjoy. So ultimately it all belongs to him and he is entrusting it to us to care for it. Do you realize that the word in scripture, the word for economy is the word oikonomos? And that word literally means house manager. So everything that we have, every resource that we would call our own, whatever that may be, is something that's been entrusted to us to care for, for someone else who actually owns it. And that would be the Lord. And so that stewardship thing fundamentally starts with us having a clear understanding of ownership. Who owns this? And we often give less than we can because we want to maintain a particular lifestyle. So we then tend to give only out of the excess of our excess. God is a generous God. And when you've experienced his grace and his generosity in your life, it changes you. It changes you. You view things differently. So God intends for us to use things and love people. But we often flip that script. And we use people because we love things. We want to get more stuff. So there's wisdom here in understanding this ownership-stewardship dynamic and the reason that it's unwise to enter into a relationship or an arrangement like he's talking about here in these first few verses is because God owns all this. And we're to use it and steward it wisely. Most of us would say, if there's any area in my life where I need wisdom the most, it's in our finances. Particularly when the economy is like it is today. I mean, let's face it. Most of us don't have, uh, you know, just an unlimited amount of money laying around so we can just do whatever we want. We have to use wisdom. We have to use discernment. Uh, And so in this area, how do you view your resources? Proverbs chapter 3, I'll remind you, we were there just a few weeks ago. Uh, in verses 27 and 28, it teaches the wisdom of generosity. It says, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is within your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again tomorrow. I will give it when you have it with you. And then listen to this perspective. This will change you. Proverbs 19.17 says, Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. That's a unique perspective that a lot of us have not considered. It doesn't mean that we're called to enter into unwise agreements or arrangements where we are legally on the line with unwise risk involved and those kinds of things. So the the wisdom strand here in this first section of chapter 6 is responsibility with our finances, our resources, is marked by generosity and thoughtfulness, kindness, and discernment, and discernment. Uh, we, we need discernment all the time. I, you may not realize this, but hardly a week goes by here at the church that someone doesn't stop by needing help. Some kind of benevolent help. Need help with gas, need help with food, they need help with 
um, a utility bill, whatever the case may be. And so our pastoral team, those of us who might uh, counsel with someone like that, we are praying for wisdom and discernment to know how we can best help in those situations. Uh, and so we, we all need wisdom to be responsible with our resources, responsibility in our wealth. Number two, I want you to notice the second section here, and that is reliability in our work. He uses the word sluggard. Now, I know there are a lot of biblical words, even though this is not the old King James, this is the ESV, uh, that maybe have kind of fallen out of use. Uh, this is one that I would, I would wholeheartedly vote we bring back into our vocabulary, okay? I just, I, for some reason, I, I like the word sluggard, okay? Is that, what, what is that, you English people, is that called an onomatopoeia? That's a word that means like what it sounds like, okay? It's like murmur. Like murmuring is like, that's an onomatopoeia. I think that's what sluggard is. You call somebody a sluggard, I think they pretty much know what you're saying. You a lazy dude, you know? I mean, just, and so this is a person who has no work ethic. The idea, the picture here is we see somebody just kind of sleeping the day away. No drive, no motivation to, to make something of themselves. It's the epitome of a wasted life. Uh, Ray Ortland again, he describes the sluggard this way. He says, the sluggard is sluggish and slow. Hesitant when he should be decisive, active, forthright. His life motto is, don't rush me. He is lazy, constantly making the soft choice, losing one opportunity after another, after another, after another, day by day, moment by moment, until he lies there helpless in his wasted life. So God not only entrusts to us resources, and we can, we can pretty quickly make a list of what those things are, but God also entrusts to us certain opportunities, certain opportunities. And so here we see that the sluggard is unreliable in that he lacks motivation to start, to start. The hardest part of any significant project or decision is to start, right? How many people have determined, please tell me I'm not the only one who has said, I am going to start eating right and I'm going to do it after the first of the year. And then, you know, the first of the year hits, and it's like, well, you know, we still have a lot of that stuff from the holidays around, so after we eat all that stuff, then I'm going to start. Then, and the next thing you know, you look up, and it's like, well, okay, after, you know, summer, I'll, this summer, I'm going it, to, it's just hard sometimes to get started. Well, well, the sluggard has an issue with getting started, not very motivated. Stephen Pressfield, in his book, The War of Art, says this. He says, most of us have two lives, the life that we live and the unlived life within us. And between the two stands resistance. I can remember my grandmother saying, Mikey, anything worth doing, anything worth doing is sometimes going to be hard. It's rarely going to be easy. There's going to be some resistance. You got to push through that. The sluggard never gets past the resistance to start. He stays in the comfort and the indecision of the covers, right? He stays in the stupor of drowsiness, and little by little, moment by moment, opportunity slips away, will not commit himself to anything. And so, one small surrender after another, he finds himself in poverty, Solomon is saying. It can happen so quickly. Secondly, we see that the sluggard fails to finish. If the sluggard does get out of bed, Proverbs 26, 15 says, the sluggard buries his hand in the dish. It wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. 
The sluggard is so sluggish, he can't bring up his own hand to feed himself. He starts, brings his hand to the dish, and, and, and gives up bringing it back to his mouth. That proverb is painting kind of a comical picture of a tragic life that is unreliable because he doesn't finish what he starts. And on the rare occasion that the slugger does start something, he lacks the drive to finish it. That's the sluggard. Then you'll notice that the sluggard fails with excuses. Excuses. Proverbs 22.13 says this, The sluggard says, There is a lion outside. I shall be killed in the streets. It's really a straw man excuse because there's no lion on Main Street. What's out there? A job, a mission, a relationship, a family, a life to live, opportunities that God places before us. The sluggard is unreliable because he makes excuses and never shows up. That's the sluggard. Ben Franklin once said, he that is good for making excuses is seldom good for anything else. I think there's some truth in that. My grandmother used to say, Mikey, an excuse is the skin of a reason stuffed with a lie. We can often find excuses why we can't, why we won't, why we... Sometimes it's just because we're lazy. It's just because we're a sluggard. And Solomon is warning his son here, don't be that guy. Don't be that sluggard. Now, now we all know this is one of those areas that can quickly get out of balance for us, right? Some of you would say, well, you, you definitely... In fact, there was someone in the early service who told me after the message this morning I was preaching to the choir because he was such a hard worker. I said, that's great. But do you realize that that can become a form of idolatry for some people? You, you, you're so the opposite of the sluggard, so driven, so, so success-focused and everything else, that that becomes like a god to you. And so this is one of those areas where we need that balance. We've got to keep it in perspective. So the wisdom strand of this section is this. Reliability means we prepare and we plan and we work hard with motivation and determination to finish strong. A life of wisdom is motivated, determined to be faithful to the end. To the end. A number of years ago when I was uh, in my early 20s, uh, I was put in a position of leadership that I probably had no business being in. I was put in a supervisory role in a warehouse setting for a Christian publishing company, uh, which meant that I had a lot of guys working under me who had more years of experience uh, and were much older than I. Uh, and so it was tough. It, it was tough. And what I discovered is that there were a lot of people who, I mean, put in what we would call an honest day's work. They were there, they were reliable, they were on time, they worked hard, they did their job without complaining and grumbling and all that kind of stuff. You could count on them, and, and I guarantee you, they could go home at the end of the day feeling a sense of pride that they had done well. There were others, if they would have spent as much time actually working as they did trying to get out of work, they could have gotten a lot more done. See, God intends for our work to be viewed as worship. So many times we have this secular, sacred divide. I've got this secular part of my life where I go to church on Sunday and everything, and then Monday morning rolls around and I'm living my secular life. Re regardless of what you do, how you provide for your family, what your job may be, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, God intends for you to, to use that, to, to steward that, to harness that for his glory, and it to be done as worship. 
That's why scripture says, and whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. Do you view your work that way? As worship? Now I realize it's harder for some of you to kind of make that, to connect those dots. You say, ah, it's easy for you to say, Pastor, because that's like what you do. Like you're preparing sermons all week and you're, you're doing ministry. Regardless of where you are, what you're doing, steward that for the glory of God. View your work as worship. Reliability in our work. Then I want you to notice thirdly, righteousness in our ways. So in these first two sections, Solomon has spent some time admonishing his son in a couple of external matters, wealth and work. Now he's going to turn the emphasis to the internal. And again, he returns to the heart of the matter. It's consistent with his teaching on wisdom. It's ultimately a matter of the heart. This is a, a strong section of scripture written with strong language because the condition of the heart, the very center of who we are, it impacts every area of our lives. Scripture talks about how even the words that you speak, they flow from your heart. If you, have, you consistently have outbursts of anger and you're constantly just lashing out at people, think that indicates there's something going on with your heart. Now, last Sunday, between the two morning worship services, I got word that my dad, who lives in McKinney, had been taken by ambulance to the hospital. Uh, and early indications were that it was something associated with his heart. Okay? And the reason that they could determine that was because of the symptoms that he was experiencing. He was experiencing just kind of an overall weakness and, a, and an just incredible lethargy. He found it hard to even make his way to the bathroom and everything. And so upon checking his blood pressure and all those things, they determined this is a heart issue. His heart was dropping. His heart rate was dropping to a dangerous, to a dangerous place. And the same thing is true of us many times. There's certain things that, that you'll begin to see patterns in your life, and really what that tells you is that there's a heart problem here. There's a heart problem here. Even in the way that you steward your, your resources, the way that you view work, it all comes back to the heart. And so Solomon is gonna kinda he's gonna dig in a little deeper here as it relates to the heart of the matter. And remember, we've said this all through this series. Your passions or your heart determines your priorities or your habits. And those priorities and habits determine your path. And so if you are determined, and I hope that we are, to choosing the path of wisdom, you have to back up and say, where's my heart in this? Where's my heart? What are the things that I really, truly love more than anything else in this world? And whatever it is that you love the most, will then it'll naturally become a priority in your life. It'll become something that you, that you give your time and attention and your resources to. So Solomon is really describing here in these last few verses uh, of, our, of our section here in chapter 6, he's describing a person with a wicked heart. He's describing the unwise or the foolish person who operates according to the misguided passions and priorities of a wicked heart. The wicked heart, it's demonstrated. You'll notice, if you look at the language, it, it's demonstrated from head to toe. Notice the language in 12 through 19. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech. There's his mouth. Winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart, comes back to the heart again, devises evil, continually sowing discord. Then he goes on to say, as you look down in, in verse number six, uh, 16, six things the Lord hates, seven abomination, haughty eyes, 
a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil. So you see, he's describing this using the mouth, the tongue, the eyes, the feet, the hands, the fingers, every part of us. What, what, what's driving all that? A wicked heart. It's a wicked heart. It's an evil heart. In fact, if you listen to the intensity of the final verses in this passage that, that most of us are, are most familiar with, a listing of, of six things that the Lord hates, seven an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, one who sows discord among brothers. All of this stems from a perverted heart, from a wicked heart. So the individual here uses deceptive speech, has evil motivations, disrupts community even, sowing discord. I find it interesting that um, we're so quick to take a section like this, these last few verses, uh, 16 through 19 particularly, and we're quick to pull certain ones out and apply it to, uh, to others. You know, we're, we're pro-life, and so it's easy for us to take out that section that says, hands that shed innocent blood, and apply that to, to, the, to the pro-choice crowd or whatever. But then we overlook all these other things, right? Because, if I'm real honest, that really might apply to me more than I'd like to admit. So it's one of those sections that can fall pretty hard on some of us. It's talking about the one who sins aggressively, the one who gets pleasure out of it, the one whose life is marked by sneakiness and deception, the one whose life is marked by evil motivations and seeks to do harm. One commentator even said this is the description of a wicked person's attitude, speech, actions, thoughts, and influence. And much like last week's message where we saw the opposite of lady wisdom in the forbidden woman, here we see the opposite of Jesus Christ, who is the very embodiment of wisdom. This is the opposite. A number of years ago, I was uh, in the post office when we were in East Texas, and I was picking up the church mail at the post office, and uh, a young dad and his, his young son came in. And the boy noticed uh, the wanted posters on the bulletin board there in the post office. You know, the pictures of... Uh, uh, you know, the wanted posters. And so he began to ask his dad about these, these pictures, these posters. And the dad was trying to explain to him the best he could. I think the kid was probably six, seven, eight years old maybe uh, at the time that these are people who have done bad things. They've, you know, stolen from people or, or whatever. They've hurt people, that kind of thing. And so uh, as he was explaining all this, kind of on his way out, he said to his son, there he says, don't be like those people. In other words, don't be that guy, right? That, that's really what Solomon is saying here to his son. Don't, don't be that guy. And here's the thing. Unless something is done about the wicked human heart, we are all, we are all, myself included, prone to the attitudes and the speech and the actions and the thoughts and the influences that are described here. It's hard to look in the mirror of these few verses. Let's be honest. The wicked man that Solomon is describing here is me. He's describing me. 
And it's as David said in the few verses we read in our call to worship to morning. In sin was I conceived. And so we would say the Bible is fundamentally a book about people who have a problem with God. And that problem is sin. It says we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. The old hymn says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. So I can't read this section of scripture and cluck my tongue in pride and arrogance thinking that Solomon is surely talking about somebody else. He's describing me. And the good news of the gospel is that the only remedy for the wicked heart is the grace and forgiveness of God that is extended to us through Jesus Christ's finished work of redemption. Jesus rescues us from our own wicked heart. So the question that rings out today is simply this. Have you placed your faith and trust in the only one who can rescue you from a wicked heart? So if we could for just a few moments enter into a time of reflection and decision. And if you would just bow your heads with me. If you're here this morning and you have never turned from your sin to faith in Jesus Christ, I want to invite you to take that step of faith. It's understanding that you can't possibly save yourself. Scripture says it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. By the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. So if you're here today and you would say, Pastor, I, I'm trying to be a better person. I'm trying to be. I, I've got to tell you that even on your best day, you can't be good enough. You, you can't turn over enough leaves. <laughs> you can't make a, enough resolutions. You can't grit your teeth hard enough. You can't white-knuckle it enough just trying to be better. The only way, the only remedy for the wicked heart that Solomon describes here is through faith in Jesus Christ. And then maybe some here would say, Pastor, I, I got some issues as it relates to my resources, my, my stuff. And if I'm completely honest, my stuff kind of has me. I don't own things. My things own me. There may be others who would say, my, my work-life balance, it's not good. You may even have to say, more often than not, I'm a sluggard. I don't always give my best. I don't always go to work with the right attitude. I don't always view it as worship. However, God may be speaking to your heart today. I want to encourage you to turn in faith to him. If your testimony is one of faith in Jesus Christ, would you determine today as you look at this section of scripture, I don't want to be that guy. I want to heed that warning. I want to avoid that path. 
And Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for how clear your word is. A word that applied in Solomon's day still applies to us today. If there's anyone here who's never trusted you as Savior and Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, the power of your word, they're drawn to you today. Lord, help us to honor you the resources that you have entrusted to us, that we would be wise stewards. Lord, I pray that you would help us to view work as a means, a way, not just make more money, but to glorify you. Whether it's in the classroom or it's in the business world, wherever it may be, help us to view our work as worship. Lord, help us to walk with pure hearts. We might glorify you in every way. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.